Welcome back to another episode of That's Business. Today's guest, Tawny, has a very interesting background that I'm so excited to dive into. So Tawny, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being a guest as a newer friend of mine. But before we dive into all the greatness that you have to offer, throw it back to childhood. Would you want to be when you grew up? And how did you get to this point you are today? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. This is this is a lot of fun, and I'm really flattered and also honored to be part of your podcast and to be able to hopefully say something inspirational or aspirational for others. When I was growing up, I wanted to be a writer, and I was a, a voracious reader. I spent a lot of time around the library in my grade school, and the librarian was she made a big difference in my life, took an interest and my love of books, but I like to write. And I thought that's what I do. And then, you know, the thing about writing is it's part of different professions. So it's kind of come full circle. I do do a lot of writing for the job that I have now, but that's pretty much what I thought I wanted to be. I have a lot of different interests and I've done a lot of little things, a lot of different things in my life. But the one thing I thought I'd do is write. I love that. Now, at what point... And if this was in your teens or um, early 20s and everything, how did you become this, I mean, powerhouse of speaking uh-huh. up on animal rights and everything that you do now? When did that kind of transition? Because you, like you said, you do still do your op-eds and you do a lot of writing. But how did you kind of bring in that animal welfare piece? My whole life, I've cared a great deal about animals. And I just feel like sometimes things like this are a calling. I wouldn't say that I was really well educated about it. I stopped eating meat when I was about 16. Wow. But most of it, I think, was for like, you know, what I perceived is things that weren't good about how we sourced our food. That bothered me. And I came from a family of farmers. It's not like I was uh, oh. oblivious. <laughs> I mean, I right. grew up in Chicago, but my mom's family were farmers in Western Kentucky. So I grew up around farms and farming. So I wasn't oblivious and and hunters also. and did some hunting myself when I was younger. Uh, But anyhow, I just was really concerned about how we treated them. And then I um, stumbled into public service and parks and recreation. When I got out of college, it was a recession. I graduated from college in 84 and in the Chicagoland area, my, my kind of background was communications, public relations. And there wasn't, you know, during recessions, that's kind of the first thing to go. So I started doing some freelance work for Park District, Oak Park, Illinois. And they, they invited me to apply for their position of manager of revenue facilities. And so I stumbled into public service. That's not what I had intended, right? Right. And- through public service, as I you know went through my career, I had an opportunity to, I was asked to apply to be the director of the animal shelter in Fairfax County, Virginia. And we're fast forwarding like 15, 20 years. And um, I didn't think I could handle it because I couldn't even go in an animal shelter without crying and standing in the parking oh. lot like a fool. <laughs> and just really ignorant and did not really, you know, uneducated about animal welfare and animal services. And uh, so I kind of, I stumbled into it, but it really has a lot in common with other professions. Animal welfare, animal services. Animal welfare is the movement. Animal services is the profession. 
and animal services as a profession had a lot in common with with parks. Interesting. Okay. It's very portable, transferable skill set. And that's interesting that you identified that. And when they asked you to do it, and like you said, because my immediate thought when I met you was like, I don't know if I could do your job. Like, I'm I'm the same way. I can't even look at Pet Finder or the adoption sites because I'm like, I want to take all the babies home. Right. So how did you kind of, I don't want to say like get over it, but identify like, hey, I need to do this. And this is my calling, like you mentioned earlier, what was kind of going through your head, if you remember. Yeah, I do. Well, the first time I was asked in 2000, I said no, because I didn't think I could be successful. I did some research and talked to people just about wanting to make sure if I was going to do this, that I'd be successful. And I was scared and nervous. The shelter was underperforming, not doing well at all. And it was animal services. Believe it or not, it's kind of political, particularly if it falls in law enforcement. The second time, Around 2012, I said yes, and I applied, and I competed for the position. Uh, I was super nervous. I'm not going to lie. I had an emotional meltdown privately because I didn't know if I was up for it. It's, you know, I'm really tenderhearted, and I didn't know if I was up for it. I was worried that I couldn't do it, but I took the job, and it was a rough couple of months. Um, The shelter was about 75%. Um, what we call a save rate. So that means 75% of the animals were leaving alive. And um, I knew that I, wa- I wanted to improve that. We were in a resource community outside of Washington, D.C., maybe about 15, 20 miles in Northern Virginia, Fairfax County, Virginia. And I, you know, I didn't have any grandiose plans. Once a week, the staff would bring me what they called the put to sleep list and animal this is full of euphemisms like in parks and recreation if somebody drowns in a swimming pool we don't say they fell asleep we say this tragedy happened and somebody drowned in a swimming pool and but in animal services it's full of euphemisms like they call everything euthanasia even though it's not and so they bring me the put to sleep list and I said hmm they call it PTS. I go, what's PTS? They said, well, this is the put to sleep list. We need you to sign off on it. So I look at the list and I go back and look at the animals. And I'm like, no, I'm not signing off on this list. And I said, you know, we need to figure out a plan for this dog or this cat. And so they, you know, they went back and came back and they go, well, this rescue can take this cat and we can do something for this cat. And this dog, um, you know, whatever. They would bring me back their ideas and their solutions. And and then we would whittle it down to really only what made sense ethically, in my opinion, to end their life humanely. And, you know, let me just be clear for your listeners. We're not trying to end euthanasia. Euthanasia, you know, ending the life of a animal because there's no hope of recovery and it's suffering, and it's at the end of its life, you, absolutely. I mean, we support that. For a veterinarian to make that decision that no amount of uh, medical intervention or time is going to improve that animal's quality of life. So we're not trying to end true euthanasia. We're trying to end the killing of animals. And I know I'm jumping ahead. No, you're great. Do it. I'm jumping into the here and now. Um, but back then, 
I didn't really know about best friends and I didn't know what no kill was and I didn't know about 90% or better. I was just coming from the parks profession and handed this put to sleep list. And I'm like, well, number one, we're not putting them to sleep because they're not going to wake up. Number two, we're going to end their lives. Let's make sure that that's the only option that we have and that there's no other options available. And, um, just started doing that. And we, you know, 90% or better, I came to find out later, is a benchmark for a life-saving organization. And that gives you a full 10% of animals that you can't do anything for. That you either, they're not safe for the community, uninterruptible, unprovoked, and un, uh, unpredictable aggression to humans. So you humanely end that dog's life. Or true euthanasia, an animal is at the end of its life. So that that's a full 10% for that. So that's kind of where that benchmark uh, criteria comes from. And we've got about 57% of shelters in the United States or 90% or better right now, which is huge, big. We've come a long way just since 2016. Wow. What would you say in your professional opinion contributes to that of, okay, you say 57%, but how do we get to 70 or 80 or increase that? Or, I mean, from an outsider's perspective, how do people support, I mean, obviously adopt and do more, but like you said, it's a, a lot of times this is politically fueled or things happen. So give us kind of like your insider look that you've helped so many shelters and you've done so much great for the world, not to skip ahead, but how do we help? Like, wh- how do we help solve this problem for someone that doesn't work inside of one? Well, it's a really good question. Well, Best Friends Animal Society, who I work for right now, we're, I'm part of that organization. We work very closely with organizations around the country, both government and nonprofit, in helping them reduce the number of animals that they're killing and increase the amount of animals that they're saving. And that's done programmatically through open adoption processes and when we say open, what we mean is, you know, barrier-free. There's no crazy long applications and taking days of vetting you as a being suitable as an adopter. You know, it's not home visits and landlord checks and calling your veterinarian. It's an hour of trust when we talk about open adoption processes, a conversation. You know, we come into a facility and we show them somebody our driver's license. We know where we live. And we sit down and have a conversation about a pet that we want to adopt or say we haven't decided yet. It's about relationship building because you're not just there. It's it's not transactional. We're hoping that we have a relationship with you. Because if it doesn't work out and you bring the pet back, there's no harm in that. That pet was out of the shelter for a number of days or a number of weeks, number of months. We know more about the pet that can help us in reholding and finding a home. So things like open adoption, what I just described, also foster programs, you know, inside the confines of a shelter, it's scary for animals. And foster programming is huge because that gives an animal a chance to sit on the sofa, be a dog, be a cat, be with the family, not be in a tiny cage with people looking at you, all the strange sounds and smells. And you can, a lot of times, pets are adopted straight out of foster because the foster home is posting on social media, showing cool things about their foster pet. And people see that and it's 
great marketing, great communication. So those are two programs. And what Best Friends does, to answer your question, it's a series of programs, policies, and procedures meant to move pets through the shelter system rather than be stuck there, which they can deteriorate emotionally, mentally, behaviorally, or they can get sick because they're in this closed population and an infectious disease can rip through the building and cause all kinds of problems for the maybe life-ending problems for the animal and problems for the people that are caring for the animals. And the other thing I should mention, because I'm just giving you some examples about what it is we do, a lot of the life-saving happens before the shelter doors. Animal control is a huge part of the life-saving equation. You know, we've thought in the past that we could punish people into compliance. Doesn't work. Have you ever gotten a speeding ticket? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so have I. Have, does that mean we never speed? No. So just because you get a parking ticket, a speeding ticket, something happens, negative consequence, that's not a good behavior shaper. And so in the olden days, in the antiquated ways is that you find people, their dog gets out of their yard, animal control picks it up, they bring it to the shelter, then you and I have to pay a fine to go get our dog. And the idea is you don't get the dog if you don't have the money. And there's like lots of people that don't have the money. And there's also lots of people that are afraid of the government and that don't want to go to an animal shelter. And there's other people that are like one car for the whole family. They're working several jobs and they can't go because they can only go when they're not working and the shelter's only open when they're working. So there's all these barriers to people getting their pets back. And that, so that's a whole nother piece of the life-saving equation, keeping pets with their families in the first place, keeping them out of the shelter is just as big as what happens if a pet comes into the shelter system and then getting them through that system as fast as you can. It's not a pet resort. And so what Best Friends does is we have staff on the ground around the country that are mentoring and that are coaching and helping facilitate and foster change and not just preach about it and set these standards, but actually hand-holding and funding. Uh, we're one of the only animal welfare you know, national organizations um, that's working on the ending of killing of pets, the killing of dogs and cats in shelters. But we're one of the only ones that put you know, really millions of dollars towards the support that shelters need. Grants for community cat programs, grants for foster programs, grants for any life-saving type of uh, assistance that an organization needs, they can apply for a grant with us. And we also are organized regionally around the country, and we have people working boots on the ground in states around the nation helping communities that want to make changes. So we, we do a lot. Um, our website's pretty built out. Um, that's just kind of it in a really long-winded elevator speech, a long <laughs> elevator speech, up and down several times. Going up a hundred <laughs> floors, right? No, but it, know, then we go back down and, and I'm we still go talking. Back up. What you do is so impactful. And I've come to learn more, which I had shared with you when we first met. I mean, I have my adopted dog, but following the shelter in Michigan or here where I am in Metro Detroit and understanding what's happening behind it or they share how much money it costs for dogs in awful situations that it costs five to ten grand and they do fundraisers and all of these things and it 
pisses me off in a sense, but it also is encouraging to like, okay, we need to do something. We need to help. We need to get this going. But going back to what you said of keeping the animals with the families, especially if they're on financial constraints, because you shared this with me the other day. What does that look like as far as, you know, if an animal keeps getting out of a broken fence or I forget the other example you provided for me, but what does Best Friends or these other organizations do boots on the ground to help these families keep their animals? Yeah, well, one thing like, you know, going talking about animal control and field services is, you know, animal control. They're the first line of people's exposure or their connection to animal services in a county or a city. And they're pivotal. They're critical. And we're trying to get move away from just punitive measures and to get more into communication, trust building with the community. You, know, you can take a dog from a family who dog keeps getting out of the yard because the, the latch is broken, because their children keep leaving the gate open, because the dog is a Houdini. <laughs> My dog, last night I had a plumber here at the house, uh, working on the house, and I was putting the dogs in another part of the house because I didn't want them to get loose. They'll get loose and just, it was snowing up here in Northern Michigan, and they'll just like run like it sounded the music, sounded music, and I'm like chasing them and falling in the snow and screaming their names. And so I put them on the other side of the house, and uh, they just open the doorknobs. Yep, just open the doorknobs. I have to have childproof plastic mechanisms on my doorknobs because the dogs can open doors. So my, I think when you and I were chatting earlier, I said, you know, you can just seize their dog and make them pay a hundred dollar fine that they. We're going to take away from buying groceries or paying the rent or medical bill or Christmas presents. Or you can help them fix a gate. You can go to Lowe's or Ace Hardware, bring them a new latch and a sack and say Merry Christmas. A lot of animal control officers carry tools on their truck now. And they go fix the latch. And now the latch works. And they put a latch on there that a little kid can't just pop open, you know, because it's fun. <laughs> um, I mean, that it's, you know, it takes some dexterity. You can still get out of the yard, but it's not just like you push on it and the gate opens. And so that's, that's huge. Or, or, or some boards to fix a hole in a fence. You know, maybe it's a single parent family. I did relief work during Hurricane Harvey down in Texas, helping people and pets. And this one dog was lost. We were taking care of her and she got really sick. And she made it. Um, I called her Lemon, but I found out later her name was Charlie. And after like being lost two or three months, Charlie's mom and her three children came to get her after being separated for three months down around the Houston area, around Beaumont, that area of Texas that was hit so hard. And she said that her husband left before the hurricane, that they'd separated and he'd left. And here she is with three kids by herself, working. Hurricane hits. She's dealing with her family's safety. They lose Charlie somehow, some way during the evacuation and the chaos and trying to figure out survival. And so we reunited Charlie with her and her children. And, and I paid to have the dog uh, spayed because she hadn't been spayed yet, you know. And that's important. To have, you know, a spayed dog or um, neutered dog, they're not going to reproduce. And then also, too, it um, just when a dog is in heat, you know, we've got other dogs running around the yard. 
running, excuse me, running around the community, running around the neighborhood. And it just creates, again, dogs getting out of their yard. And so uh, it's part of public safety and it's also preventing unwanted litters. We've got plenty of dogs already. We have a plethora of, of dogs in the United States. So we, you know, spay neuter is an important part of our life-saving toolkit. It's one of the things that a community should be supportive of and have in place. So anyhow, another up and down the elevator 15 times. <laughs> I love it. You are making this so easy. I'm just sitting back, hanging out. I'm like, go off. Like, you're doing great. I, You're not making me work hard, Tawny. So I'm good with it. You're doing great. <laughs> oh, you're very kind. You can tell I feel passionate about this. Yes. It's such an important topic because it's not just about pets. Mm-mm. It's about people. Here's the thing. Here I go again. Go off. Here's the thing. Pets, so dogs, cats, companion animals. I talked about this in my TEDx talk, not your grandpa's dog pound. Mm-hmm. I'd get ready to do another TEDx talk. Oh, you didn't tell me that. See, this is classic Tawny. I come to it mentally. <laughs> and then I got, so I say, I declare I'm doing a TEDx talk. I haven't been accepted, nor have I been invited. But you will be. But I'm going to find... Oh, I'm going to find the place. And I'm hoping I, I'm hoping like it's Chicago or Philadelphia. But anyhow, my next TEDx talk is going to be making a business case for ending the killing of pets in the United States. Because it's easy for us to go, save the fur babies. I love my pet. I love my dog. It's like my child. Well, you know what? It's also dollars and cents. There's also a piece to our economy, right? Because think about it. Municipal leaders, they have a finite amount of resources. Right. And they're funding schools and they're funding the fire department and the police department and they're funding the health department. And there's all these competing priorities and animal services, animal shelter, just the word shelter and the word welfare are soft words. They get short shrifted. So let's drag this subject out where it belongs to be, this topic, this important topic. And it's about community wellness, health and well-being of human beings, and the economy. Pets contribute thousands, consumers, pet parents, pet guardians, pet owners, whatever word you're comfortable with, um, pet people spend hundreds and thousands of dollars on their animals monthly, annually, over the life of the animal. So they're contributing to the economy and that should not be marginalized, nor should the physical and mental and emotional wellness piece be marginalized. They complete families. They stave off loneliness and depression. They help with anxiety. They connect us socially. I know every dog's name in my my neighborhood, but I don't know the people's name. (laughs) The important ones. Exactly. I get it. People people get together because of their dogs and have beers and cookouts and block parties. and, And they also contribute to the economy. So my next TEDx is going to be about the money uh, portion of being a life-saving community. But um, we were talking about TEDx. How did I get on that soapbox? You asked me a question about... um, I think we were talking about the TEDx talk because we haven't even talked about what your first one was on. So tell listeners, and we'll include a link to for them to listen in the show notes. But what was that experience like? What made you apply to be a TEDx speaker and going through that whole process? Super scary. So I did it. Uh, one of the best things I've ever done. Awesome. I did it at Southern Utah University a couple of years ago. I had a great coach, Beth Wolfer. 
She works for Best Friends Animal Society in our plan giving or development department, but she also is a TEDx coach. Oh. Like I said, she works for Best Friends and is a close friend of mine and a mentor when it comes to speaking. The thing I learned about the TEDx talk is it's about oration. You and I can probably stand up in a room and present and talk about things, and particularly if you've got a slide deck um, to like point to and to use as a tool. Um, it's different when you're on that red dot and you don't have a teleprompter, you don't have your notes, it's oration. And it was really humbling and good for me to do. Um, I think I called it Not Your Grandpa's Dog Pound. And what it was about is how far we've come in animal services as a profession. In the 80s, we were killing about 20 million uh, animals in shelters. And today, we're just under 4,000. We're about 375,000. And about 60% of that's cats. We talk a lot about dogs, but approximately 60% of that 375,000 is cats. So if we just stopped killing cats in our country, we'd be almost a no-kill nation. We'd be darn, darn close. So cats, you know, community cat programs are so important for cities and counties to embrace and stop killing cats that live outdoors or that are people's pets and they're getting impounded. Less than 1% of cats are reclaimed in shelters. Wow. 1% to 2%. Yeah, it's less than three, and it, it hovers around one or two nationally. Depends in each community, it's a little different, but it's stupid low. So, not your grandpa's dog pound, TEDx talk, Southern Utah University. I talked about how far we've come, and then I talk about my own personal little story about my family. My dad was a police officer outside of Chicago and Skokie, Illinois. And one night he brought home a puppy, uh, a German Shepherd mixed puppy with a torn ear. Somebody had found it in a box in a field and had come up to my dad's squad car and given him the puppy, was worried about it. And so my dad brings it to the vet. And after a few days, he calls and the puppy ends up with us. And his name was Fritz. <laughs> and I know, right? He was our dog until he passed. So I think I had a photo of me, my little brother, and Fritz on Halloween. We're all like dressed up like in an outfit or something. And so the TEDx talk was about some of the things I've alluded to in our conversation so far, or my speech, my speechifications, is the value of companion animals in our lives. And it's not frivolous. You know, we it has been marginalized. Animal shelters were built on the outskirts of town as a utilitarian function. They were pounds. And how far we've come that now we're recognizing the importance and they're becoming community centers. You know, it's not pounds anymore. And that's where we're headed. Um, Best Friends set a bold goal 2016. We said by 2025, we would be a no-kill nation. That means every community in our country 90% 90% or better. So we have two years, less than two years to do it. Less than, yeah. We're going to do it. Oh my gosh. It's like you you knew what my next question was going to be because it's going to be what's what do we have in the future? What are some big goals we have? So you already answered it. To achieve that goal, and I know this is probably could be its own podcast for all the strategy and what you need to do, but kind of stepping in on the surface what does that look like or what programs or legislature, whatever that looks like, do you have to do to achieve that 
by 2025, which I mean, realistically, isn't a year because we're uh, com- we're finishing off 2023 here. So yeah, and we're looking at you know for us it would be we're going to go through 2025. So we're using that as a working year. Um, I'm pretty sure. I think you know. Remember, we didn't know we were going to have the major disruption of a pandemic, right? When we declared our goal in 2016, I think it was July 2016. We didn't know. No, none of us knew about this huge social and public health and economic disruption that really turned the economy, the world upside down. People lost their lives and animal services was greatly affected. You know, you had people that couldn't work, that weren't coming to work. And it's, you know, we weren't selling TVs. We were taking care of living creatures, dogs and cats and we're helping people too. I mean, we know statistically where animals are hurting, people are hurting. It's usually in socially vulnerable pockets of our country that uh, you're seeing people call it lack of pet-friendly housing. I call it discriminatory housing because under the law, pets are considered property. You know, we consider them part of our family, but under the law, they're considered property. And so landlords can say no pets, but they can't tell you, you can't have a guitar. You can't have a microwave. You can't have a motorcycle. You can't have a uh, TV, but under the law, you know, pets are considered property and they can say that you can't have that. And I understand the need to protect property, but you can do that other ways. And so discriminatory housing for the socially vulnerable can mean that that pet ends up in an animal shelter. Um, so that's a huge piece of the puzzle for us nationally that we can we address that. And that's something that, you know, we can't change. You and I can't change that. But we can certainly be talking to our elected and appointed officials. A biggie is public housing. We use public dollars and tax breaks for corporate organizations. They get these tax breaks to build public housing. And then there's no pets allowed. And in senior housing, no pets allowed. So those are big topics, but what we can do to help us get there, I think people adopting and and going into shelters, the beautiful animals. I know a lot of people are like, well, I want a pug or I want a, I want a collie or I want a lab or I want a, a labradoodle. You'd be surprised if you give your shelter a chance and you let them know what you're looking for. And I know we can't help ourselves. Many, most people are attracted to or a lot of people, I shouldn't say most, you know, I grew up with spaniels or I grew up with shepherds and I really like this. And, you know, it's something I've envisioned my whole life. My husband and I and my our white picket fence and our 2.5 kids and a Labrador retriever in the front yard. And I get it. My family, my friends, I get it. I think because of Fritz, I didn't have any preconceived notions at all. I didn't, it wasn't even on my mind, but I, I have people close to me that grew up with certain kinds of animals. And I think if you're thinking about that, adopt, go into shelters. You'll be surprised if you're having any issues with a rescue or a shelter. There's so many of them around you. So that's a biggie, you know, adopting, uh, fostering is, you know, some people can't make their mind up. Like, I don't know if I should adopt right now. I might move. I can't really commit. 
uh, fostering is a great way. And they're like, well, I'm going to become too too attached emotionally. I think that it's life-saving. It's life-saving. Getting that animal out of that building, posting it on your social media. And you know what? If you decide to adopt the pet, great. Even better. And um, I think, you know, if you want to give to organizations financially or of your time, just make sure, do, do your homework, make sure that they actually are devoted to life-saving and that they are what they say they are. Do some research. Just because it says SPCA or Humane Society or your local municipal shelter, and sometimes, you know, like the website looks nice and bright and sunny and all the words sound good, but look at the data. One thing you could do is check out the Best Friends Pet Lifesaving Dashboard. You can look at that dashboard and see where your community is. Oh. Uh, it's on our network.bestfriends.org. And uh, you can put it right in there, Best Friends Animal Society Pet Lifesaving Dashboard. And it's super cool. It helps you look at how your community is doing around lifesaving or how an organization is doing around lifesaving. Because if you're going to volunteer and you're going to give your precious financial give your dollars to donate or to give your time, you want to make sure you're giving it to an organization truly focused on life-saving in their community. That's important to know. And that's something huge. And I love what you said about giving shelters a chance because I don't think a lot of people realize this. And I mean, I rescued my dog, love her to pieces, but some people are like, well, I want a specific dog, like you said, or breed. But Walking into my shelter and I had such a great experience and I'm going to give their link here too, but I walked in, got the dog during the pandemic because I couldn't go anywhere and I was living alone and lonely as hell. And I walked in and I didn't even put for the dog I got. I put in for a different dog. And once I got approved and I was like, look, I work from home. I will W-A-L-K because I can't say it since she's sitting right here. It every day. I will be attentive. I just can't have one that barks all day. I'm on the call. I'm on phone calls. I'm on meetings. Like, I can't have a puppy. I can't have this. But I will take care of it. We'll go on adventures. We'll be my little buddy. And the woman from the shelter was like, "Mm, I think I have the perfect dog for you. And hence chose Ruby for me. And it's so interesting because she was super timid at first. I was anxious. She was anxious. I've never had a dog on my own, only when I was a kid. And that was different because your parents would take care of it, like do all the work. And I just got the fun part of it or, you know, some of the less work. But I remember being terrified and, you know, the saying of, oh, I got a dog to help with my anxiety, but instead I got the dog with anxiety. So that's me. <laughs> um <laughs> But it's so cool walking in and just having that honest conversation because I would have never picked just based on what breeds I knew and not knowing as much like exploring. But the workers, directors, anyone that works in animal shelters, animal welfare like you do, you want what's best for them. And just like matchmaking was so huge. And I will die on that hill of how important this is to just like trust your shelter because they do great work and they know the temperament of the dogs. Yeah, they want a match. They want a good match. Yes. And it was a conversation. You didn't have to give your kidney to get a nope. to get a dog. I did not. No. Where'd you end up adopting from? I heart dogs, animal haven and shelter. It's a very long name. 
but they call it iHeart. It's very cute. We're doing a pretty good job here in Michigan. Yes, they are doing a great job. Right, well, when they look at the United States, when you go to the Pet Life Saving Dashboard, mm-hmm. you can actually look at the United States and you can see the states that are doing really well in the states that need more help. And that's something too, you haven't asked me about it, but I do want to talk about that no-kill language and yes. sometimes it's off-putting to other people. Mm-hmm. Well, how big is Ruby? Ruby's 50 pounds. She's a Sharpay Shepherd and she is uh-huh. the biggest little princess in the world. But we'll put a pill. I bet you spoil her rotten. Oh my gosh. She, I was just complaining because she likes my boyfriend and his brother more than me now. I swear. I'm like, I <laughs> I am the one that did this. But no, she's great. She's come a long way. And I, I do treat her like my child of... Just seeing her personality come out. I mean, I bought her all these toys when I first got her. I'm like, I'm going to have a dog. She didn't know how to play with toys. Like, didn't know how to play with them. She was a year and a half. She clearly has been abused because she's got fur missing. Uh, She's she's now waking up. She's like, stop calling my name. But she's got different patches of hair missing on the back of her legs. She was skittish of people in uniform. Always barks at cop cars and Amazon drivers. So I think previous owner was one of the two. But she very much has come a long way and has such a big personality. And she, I will, I mean, she was potty trained and just like the financial savings to working with shelters. I mean, it was, I think she was 225 and it was neutered, all her shots up to date, microchipped. And I think they gave me like a month's worth of food and a collar and leash. Like that's huge. But yes, back to the language of no kill, because I had it on my list in my mind to think, and then I got off track as we did. But let's talk about that, because that is a huge part of what that means. So yeah, it is a problem for some folks. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually going on another um, podcast, I think next week, to talk about the language and, and people object to it. They say, you know, when you say no kill, you know, why does best friends say save them all? That's, that's a tagline or a slogan of ours. And why do you have to say no kill? Like, you know, if you say no kill, that implies that we're killers. And, you know, I worked in the municipal sheltering world and I was at a conference in Washington, D.C. And I had a couple of young people at a no kill conference, uh, not our conference, not best friends, but uh, a no kill conference for Nathan Winograd's conference. And they came up to me and they looked at my name tag, Fairfax County Animal Shelter. And they said, oh, you're a kill shelter. And I know what that felt like. Right. I know that, you know, I wanted to suck them in the nose. Um, (laughs) It was upsetting. It was insulting. It was a little confusing for me. Remember, I don't come from the animal services field. I come from the parks, but more public service, more universal thinking. Um, One of the things I think that we have to understand is that for 150 years, the animal services profession, the field, has been broken. You know, from the very beginning, the way we started, if you go back in time and you look at how large cities were handling stray animals by rounding them up, putting them in cages, drowning them in rivers, electrocution, gassing, it's been broken from the beginning. And you know, not to bore you to tears with the history of animal services, but it's been marginalized. I mean, just animal welfare, people having to beg for money to help companion animals. And animals, if you look at our timeline in our country, have gone from the barnyard to the backyard to the front yard to the living room. 
to sleeping on beds in, in our bedrooms. They're part of our family. And so we're trying to flip the script. We, we, no, we're trying. We are flipping the script on what animal welfare, animal services, the profession is about. And that is that shelters would start with life first. And end of life would be the last option. Again, euthanasia, we're not trying to, to end. So that really doesn't count. If you have to euthanize an animal because it's at the end of its life or it's medically, you can't help it from suffering. You can't alleviate suffering. That's true euthanasia. If a dog is not safe to put out in the community because of that uninterruptible, unprovoked, and unpredictable aggression to human, that's a humane end of life, right? But it's not euthanasia. It's a humane ending of life. So because we've been using euphemisms like put to sleep and calling everything euthanasia, I think it's really important if we're going to remake our profession that we use accurate language. Every other profession you can think of, law, law enforcement, medical, the medical field, your doctor doesn't use baby words to talk to you. And your accountant doesn't use euphemisms. Your dentist doesn't. Your mechanic of your car, you know, someone comes to fix your heating and air conditioning, the fire department, whatever profession you're looking at, legitimate profession uses accurate language. And so I think that we can say that we're not euthanizing animals, but we're ending their lives prematurely and that animals are being killed. But that doesn't mean that we're calling people killers. We don't do that. It would be so destructive. We don't call names. It's not about belittling people and calling them names. That's not productive at all. In fact, if anything, we object to the fact that animal lovers are hired. If you and I were interviewing for a shelter position, they'd want to know our experience with the animals. We talk about our lifelong love of them. You talk about how important Ruby is. I would talk about how important Sunny and Maid are in my life and my my whole background. So then, you know, every Friday we go through and we end the lives of healthy, treatable, adoptable animals. It's macabre. It's bizarre. There's a pathology to taking animal lovers as sensitive, empathetic souls and asking them to end the lives of animals because we just don't have the resources. We're trying to solve for that. And by using more euphemisms, what is the urgency? Like, why would the community want to end euthanasia? Why would you want to end euthanasia? Right. But you'd want to end killing, Exactly. Correct? And I love when you had said this, and I'm going to butcher it, but you had talked about on our first conversation that stuck with me of the example you said about drowning. It was one like that that you gave me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it was like the aha moment or that came through because it's true. And I mean, especially over the pandemic and a lot of hard conversations we've all been forced to have. And this is another one because it makes people uncomfortable. I'm sorry. How uncomfortable do these poor animals feel? And that's, I mean, ridiculous, too. How uncomfortable do they feel? Exactly. Having their life ended Mm -hmm. by an animal lover who has to carry that trauma with them the rest of their life. Right. And then they end up in a plastic sack in the back of the building in a dumpster or an incinerator. I mean, how can you argue for that? I also have tremendous empathy and compassion for people that are working in the field that don't have the resources they need. That's what Best Friends is working for. Like, we're not standing around criticizing and pontificating. 
we're putting our money where our mouth is. We're going out and we are embedding staff in shelters. We are mentoring people. We're giving grants and time and money. If a shelter contacts us and says, look, we want to save more lives. We don't have the resources we need. We'll come in. We'll do an assessment. We'll help them in communicating with their chain of command and looking for the funds they need. If it's legislation and advocacy, one of the questions you asked me earlier that I didn't answer is, as I went off on a bird walk with you, was legislation, like what needs to change? And I think I mentioned cats, community cats, doing away with stupid laws like leash laws for cats. Come on. Other than on Instagram and TikTok, on one hand, how many times have you seen a cat being walked on a leash? Yeah, uh-huh. never. I've none of my friends that are cat people. No, I've maybe a harness, or if they've got a catio in their yard, or but you don't go. I want to take my cat for a walk, right? But there's leash laws on the books in cities and counties. Oh, you know what we were talking about? I think, and correct me if I'm wrong. We were talking about if your house catches on fire and my house catches on fire, the fire department shows up using the same technology the same procedures, the same equipment. Their uniforms even look alike, except for the little patches and what's painted on the side of their red trucks. That's a discipline. And animal services is not a discipline yet. And that really makes some people mad when I say that. They feel insulted. And I'm like, look, if it was a discipline, that means every city and county would have very, very, very similar policies, procedures, and programs. And right now, mayors and city councils and county commissions can do whatever they want. They can kill all the cats. Or not. They can just make up whatever laws they want based upon politics or public opinion or status quo or the most tenured employee there that's been there 35 years since they were like 15 and they're calling the shots. So- One of the things that we're working on that I worked on in my previous job at Best Friends is creating that discipline. So we have continuity and consistency across the nation. And like when you, if you and I go, no matter where we go in the United States, my dream before I'm pushing up daisies is that counties and cities have the same type of programming where they're starting with life first and animal lovers and animal control and animal shelter employees are not asked to do the unthinkable, that it's reserved for when you've tried everything else. That's the dream. That's my hope. <sighs> There's so much. We've only scratched the surface of all that needs to happen. And just the pure, I mean, the metrics you come with, the achievements you've come with. I mean, You've you've moved to different states. You've helped different pockets. You're in northern Michigan right now. I mean, I mean, just thank you for all the work you do and all the lives you've literally saved from your work. So I feel like you you don't give yourself enough credit for all the badassery and good things you've done for this world. I just love it that you said badassery. Yeah, you are. I feel like I got all geeky on you in the beginning and started to preach. When we probably should have said badassery like like five <laughs> times before, I um I want to be badassery. That's what I want to be when I grow up. Badassery. I should have said that. <laughs> we'll include that. But thank you. Listen, I feel privileged that I feel like it's a blessing and it's a calling and it's an honor 
And I'm just glad that I know you and I appreciate what you're doing for professionals. And give me the platform to talk about this and you bringing Ruby into your life and that you that you care so much. Thank you. I think that that's what's going to make the world a better place. We're trying one step at a time, but oh, thank you. You you just made my whole day here. So thanks, Tawny. But as we wrap this up, what advice do you have for listeners? I would hope that we all are not just passengers in this life. I, I would hope that we all try and leave it better than we found it. And you don't have to be an animal lover or a vegetarian to make humane choices and to make the world a better place. You don't have to have an animal in your life to help make a better place for animals and people. I think just how we walk through our life and we make decisions and we help other people matters. And we want this life to count. And I would hope that, you know, your listeners and, you know, your followers of the podcast and all the future ones, because it's only going to grow and get bigger, think about what they can do to make the world a little brighter, kinder place for all of us. I think that's what it's about, regardless of your religion or your politics. It's about kindness. It's about compassion. It's about living a beautiful life. And I hope that I just inspire like a teeny little flame in somebody who's listening. And uh, that would make my day too. Well, you inspired me per usual. And I like to say, if I feel like I can run a marathon as someone who is flat-footed, large-footed and cannot run, feels like I can run a marathon, then you've inspired me. So thank you. Connie, <laughs> thank you. this was impactful. This is so great. For those of you listening, if you want to check out the resources Tawny spoke about, check out Best Friends, head to the show notes and tune in again next week for another episode of That's Business. If you're looking for a career change and you're not sure where to start, the Resume Rescue can help. Sure, there's no such thing as the perfect fit for everyone, but here at the Resume Rescue, we're on a mission to find the perfect solution for you. Whether it's changing careers, updating a resume, learning LinkedIn, or practicing interviewing, we have you covered. Find us online at theresumerescue.com and find all of our contact info in our show notes.